Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Friends of Sanctuary podcast. I'm Mary Ann Bartels, Chief Investment Strategist at Sanctuary Wealth. Today, I'm pleased to welcome our guest, Laura Rain, the Chief U.S. Economist and Managing Director on the investment team at FS Investments. Laura, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Well, there's a lot to talk about about the economy. Yeah. And where I'd like to start off is that this has really been a very unique kind of economy uh, in the sense that we've been growing despite the Fed aggressively raising rates. I don't even remember in my career going from zero to five and a quarter in, in about a year's time. And yet we have part of the economy weak, but part of the economy extremely strong, right? So what, what's your outlook? Because I think people are very surprised at how strong the economy has been in the face of these higher rates. So what are you telling your clients? Yeah, this is in every way a very unique business cycle. Just look at where we started, you know, from this extraordinary recession. And it really still feels to me like it's on fast forward. We had the fastest recovery in employment. In 2022, we were already talking about two consecutive quarters of negative growth and a possible recession. The Fed rate hike was the fastest since the 1980s. So it's still really seeing these whipsawing shifts in expectations. I think from here, looking to the end, the second half of the year and into next year, we do expect these tremendous tailwinds, the excess growth, the excess savings that households had to shift to headwinds. And I think the next half of the year and into 2024, we're going to see slower growth from this really red hot pace that we still have today. So let's switch to inflation, right? That's been top of mind with the Fed and why they've been raising interest rates so aggressively. Um, we are seeing CPI come down. We're seeing PPI come down. Um, the Fed has a target of 2%. Do you think they can actually reach their target? Inflation back at 2% is going to be more challenging than I think markets appreciate. We peaked at over 9% in the middle of last year, and inflation's come down to, say, call it 4%, core inflation 4.5%. Fitting the genie back in the bottle at 2% is really a challenge. And I think it's like swimsuit season. You know, it's the last <laughs> five pounds that are the hardest. And one of the things, for example, right now we're seeing energy prices coming back up again. Food prices are moving back into the equation. And finally, rent inflation is a, going to be a challenge. If inflation comes down to 2%, it's probably not going to be until later in 2024 and that really limits the Fed's room to maneuver should the economy slow further. So with the economy still very strong, um, you have the, the one of the lowest employment rates in, in, in history, right? And the Fed wants to, as you pointed out, wants to get this inflation down. Where do you think the terminal rate has to go? And I've started to hear numbers around 6%. Which, you know, even a year ago, nobody was even forecasting. So where are you telling your investors where you think the terminal rate or, or the short end, right, the short end interest rate for clients that yeah. may not know what, what the terminal rate is? 
Which, how high do you think that might possibly have to go? You know, you're talking to one of the few people that still thinks the Fed could need to bump that rate up a little bit more before we do face any kind of rate cut cycle, just given, again, the tremendous momentum the economy has. Look at where we've been in history. I mean, I think this last 15 years has really made us a little bit complacent on the rate hike front, thinking that rates are sort of naturally around zero. And the Fed may very well have to hold interest rates in restrictive territory for quite some time. And should inflation start to even creep up a little bit, I think they're going to have to step on the brake with another rate hike even, you know, again. So five and a half, four now, I think is a reasonable expectation for the next year or two, unless the economy really slows substantially further. So I think another way maybe we can position it or at least I, I, I think this will help some some listeners and or watchers, um, is it's really normalizing to what normal used to be. We, we, we've, since 2008 and 2009, have not really been in what is normal. Could you say that the Fed is trying to just get back to normal? I, I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there. And you know, I don't like to say age, I like to say experience. I think if we've been through a lot of business cycles, we have seen interest rates significantly higher than where they are today. I think when we look at even long-term interest rates around 4%, a lot of people are surprised they're that high given where inflation is and where the Fed funds rate is and where growth is, I'm surprised they're that low. We look back at the 90s, the mid 90s, when we did have a Fed rate hike cycle that did not end in a recession. The Fed managed that soft landing, which is, you know, I think the markets are optimistic today that that's going to happen. The Fed had to hold rates around 5% for a long time. The 10 year rate back then was 7.5%. That's not my forecast, but I think we really need to shake ourselves out of the last 15 years and uh, recognize that that was probably not the new normal, that was abnormal. We're now getting back to something that aligns more with where we should be seeing interest rates given the underlying economic fundamentals. Now, one thing I never looked at because it was never important early in my career was the Fed's balance sheet. And during the great financial crisis, one of the ways that the Fed stimulated was to grow its balance sheet. And the balance sheet went up to three trillion. What shocked me is during COVID, and I understand COVID was a global massive shock of historic proportion, but that balance sheet basically went from three trillion to nine trillion, and that's called quantitative easing, right? Sure. And they're they're now doing quantitative tightening. They're 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 trying to get that balance sheet down, but that balance sheet is still extraordinarily high. How are you factoring in not just rate hikes, but does the balance sheet, how high it is, how much they're coming down, does that even matter? You know, I think it really does matter. And it may not matter from the, the investor perspective in terms of Fed meeting by Fed meeting, but we have to remember that as the Fed lets their balance sheet shrink, the marginal buyer for treasuries is going away or at least fading. And this is coming at a time when Again, after 10 years of interest rates at zero, we've been issuing government debt kind of with our eyes closed. And it's all coming home to roost now. We're seeing the treasury auction sizes get bigger. 
And we're seeing foreign buyers, you know, not as interested as they have been in the past. I think you add it all up, Marianne, and you get a picture where um, it's not going to be a sudden change in interest rates. But, you know, we've just been talking about where rates are sort of naturally headed. And I think in the long term, they're headed a little bit higher and the Fed shrinking their balance sheets, absolutely an important piece of that. So let's look at the economy and, and, and split it up because how, how I open, I said part of the economy is good, part of the economy is not good. Um, the manufacturing side of the economy, which is very interest rate sensitive, has really responded to, to, sure. to the higher rates. Housing, still very strong, but that has to do with supply and demand. So even with mortgage rates up above 7%, we're still seeing strong demand on, on average. But the service side, the consumer, doesn't seem to be sensitive to rates going higher. And, I th and, and of course, that's probably because the employment rate is so, so low. We have people employed. How do you factor that in? What do you think the Fed is thinking about? Because, okay, so I took economics a very, very long time ago. The word we used to use, and I know you're an economist, so you'll understand yeah. this. We used to use elasticity. Yes. Took me a long time to understand it until my professor said, Marianne, it's like a rubber band. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know, whether you're sensitive to interest rates or not sensitive. Right. right now, the consumer doesn't seem to be sensitive to interest rates. Does that concern you that the Fed may have to even be more aggressive in slowing down the economy since the consumer is, is not really responding yet? You, you've definitely hit on something, which I think you know, really has taken a shocking, to me, it's been surprising that this wasn't obvious from the beginning. When we fixed the floating rate mortgage vulnerability that caused the financial crisis and the Great Recession, we really started to limit a channel for monetary policy to act on the economy. I like to think of the economy as this big 18-wheeler, right, that had a lot of momentum. And when mortgages were more floating rates, um, when the Fed pulled on the emergency brake, they hit, you know, 10 of the 18 tires. Now they're probably only hitting four of the 18 tires because so many people have locked in mortgages at a long-term fixed low rate. But that doesn't mean that they're not still hitting four of the tires. And I think you pointed to, you know, really strong services spending. A lot of that has so far been drawing down this excess savings right? It's like $2 trillion of excess savings. Even for us shopaholic Americans, that takes a long time to draw that down. But now going forward, I think it is starting to have an impact. Credit card debt just topped a trillion dollars. That's 16% higher than a year ago. And that debt is interest rate sensitive. You know, people are still buying new cars, not at the same feverish pitch, but those new loans are seeing a higher interest rate. It all is eroding how much money there is to spend on discretionary spending. And I think over time, you're going to add that to a very lackluster goods side of our economy and probably come up with a slower pace of growth in the fourth quarter, first quarter of next year. By the way, I love that analogy of the 18-wheeler and four tires hit and still got four work, right? It's because it's hard to slow yeah. down once yeah. you've got momentum with an 18-wheeler. Takes a long time to yes. slow it down. So I really like that analogy. Good. Let me ask you, can you break out the consumer, right? We, we tend to look at high-end consumer 
and and luxury spend yeah. versus the lower end consumer. Um, are you seeing a difference between those two? We we definitely are, and I think you know it's it's again always a little multifaceted, a little nuanced. We saw in the latest earnings round some of the high end retailers showing unexpected softening in their sales, and I think what we may have seen is because of the pandemic, because it was such a focus on goods spending, some you know sort of lower end consumers were pushed or put put themselves into that high end bracket. And they probably shouldn't have been there in the first place. So that's kind of sifting out a little bit. And, you know, revenge travel has also just been <laughs> such a big part of spending. And I think a lot of people who never previously would have thought to go to Europe have done it because all of a sudden they can. I'm um, one of them. Yeah, you know. I mean, <laughs> it's amazing how packed Europe is right yeah. now. I, I think, you know, if you look at the forward bookings, um, you look at some of the, you know, the Airbnb type of, uh, you know, bookings that, that look out a little further. There is some softening there. When I see people talking about all the, you know, the, the, the fare cuts in airlines in the fall, in the winter, I translate that into falling demand of the marginal traveler. So I think, again, this is part of the, um, you know, final, I think, you know, real throws of the excess spending that came from this real, um, you know, release from lockdown. And going forward, as we find a new normal, there's no way the consumers can continue to spend at the same rate that they are, even though the labor markets are arguably very strong. So let's go a little bit deeper into the labor markets. Um, let's talk about wages, right? Because at least when I went to school, the models used to say that wages were an important component of predicting future inflation. And um, we're starting to see wages go up. We're starting to see like the Teamsters would be an example, trying to ne negotiate higher wages. How do you factor in where wages are? To me, wages are a huge part of why I am very reticent to just think that inflation is going to easily slip back into the 2% bucket. Um, at the end of the day, over, you know, inflation is going to track wages and we see wages also, you know, tracking that pattern, coming down from, you know, 7%, depending on your measure, really high to now more like 4%. But, you know, there are a lot of bonuses. We're tipping more. Um, there's a lot more labor activity and wage negotiations are still something that companies are really having to manage through. I think when I add it all up, I see an inflation picture that remains stubbornly and uncomfortably high for the Fed. And I think for companies, too, it's going to be a, a reason why this margin compression is probably going to continue. You know, that that brings me to China. There's a yeah. lot of economic data coming out on China. Um, or not anymore, right? They stop reporting economic data if they don't like it. <laughs> no, that does happen. But the data that we just got. Yeah. <laughs> One of the components is that their CPI went negative. And my, I was just thinking, could that be deflationary on a global front? Now, obviously, the second largest economy slowing down could also have an impact on um, other global yeah. economies. Have you, because this is brand new data, have you had even a chance to even kind of think about what the possibilities might mean with the data that we're recently seeing out of China. Oh, for sure. And I think, you know, China, of course, is uh, is top of mind for virtually every investor or virtually every client. I think, you know, when we look at 
the balance of the impact of China's economy on ours, or I would, let me even say the, the impact of globalization on our economy. To me, the, the probably the more, um, I'm giving more weight to the impact of deglobalization and that being at the margin inflationary for us. And let me just peel that apart a little bit because you know, I don't think there's a chance that we're going to be sort of reshoring so much of this non-durable goods manufacturing that we pushed over to China and to Southeast Asia over the last 25 years. But even when we have companies that are duplicating their supply chains or moving production from China to, say, India, that implies a bigger cost, a higher cost. So um, while, you know, slower growth for China certainly is not good for global growth, um, unfortunately, our inflation at 2% really only works if we have deep goods deflation from China. Maybe I'll put it another way. We've already been importing a lot of deflation from China in the form of low-cost goods. I don't think China's domestic labor situation. too, no? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, exactly. It, and and I would argue those are two two sides of the same coin. You know, as, as you put it well, um, you know, we have outsourced so many of those manufacturing jobs to China, and that has really caused um, you know us to to import this uh, lower inflation through uh, cheap goods. I think now that could reverse somewhat, and I think we've already seen that in goods prices. They've come down, but they're not back into deflation. And even China's having trouble finding, you know, labor costs, um, keeping labor costs as low as they have in the past. So it's going to be, I think, uh, a really important piece of the global growth picture. But on the inflation side, I think actually on balance, it's actually inflationary for us. Given all the movements in our economy and now now globally, what are some of your favorite economic indicators that you watch? And what are some of the indicators that you would recommend that our audience should pay attention to maybe in the next few months or the next few quarters? Sure. To me, the, the canary in the coal mine is that weekly initial jobless claims series. It bottomed at the beginning of last year. Um, I had sort of, you know, put my finger on 250 as a threshold that if we cross that, and again, higher initial jobless claims means that more people are applying for unemployment insurance because they've been let go. So higher is bad. And if we get, uh, you know, notably um, higher above 250, that could sort of trigger or historically has triggered sort of an asymmetric move up. And we actually did cross that threshold for a couple of weeks. We came back down, but it's something that I'm, you know, every Thursday morning, I am looking at that indicator and seeing what it looks like. Outside of that, to me, consumer confidence remains just one of the most important features of our economy. At the end of the day, the decisions that we as households, we as consumers make all add up to our $24 trillion economy. And if I see consumers feeling less confident, less optimistic about the future, that translates very quickly into choosing to wait a year to buy the new car. You know, getting the rug fixed instead of buying the new rug. These are the decisions that really move us from a slow growth environment into contraction. So earlier this year, we actually saw a few regional banks go under. And this has led to some credit tightening in the economy. So this is just another bucket of factor. How are you factoring in what's happening in the regional space 
And recently we had the potential warning that if the financial sector um, gets downgraded by Finch, some banks could wind up getting downgraded. How do you factor in what's happening in the banking sector right now? I think this is one of the, you know, we talked at the beginning about the cycle being on fast forward. The fact that this happened so early on in an expansion um, with balance sheets and other markets looking so solid, I think is really something that we should pay close attention to and speaks to the severity of the Fed's policy tightening. Um, and, you know, listen, I think that credit standards are only going to continue to tighten from here. Even if I don't expect a crisis in the financial market, this is the slow credit squeeze that will very likely continue to build as a headwind. And, you know, look at the loan officer survey right now showing over 50% of loan officers tightening credit quality. We haven't had that number go above 50 without a recession. A recession is not a foregone conclusion. But as I look ahead, I see slower growth and tighter credit conditions are a big part of that. So can you talk a little bit about what's going on with the bank's balance sheets the, the, where, sure. where they hold like um, treasuries or agencies on the balance sheet? Because at least right now we're seeing the back end of the curve kind of back up, which means because yields and price are inversely related. Sure. So yields go up, the value of the price goes down, means that the portfolio value on the bank's portfolio value on their balance sheet is going down. And that's kind of what started the crisis in March and April. So how are you factoring that in when you're looking at at, at banks? I, I think so the, the best way that I think about it is that it's one more reason why banks are going to have to be really cautious on the lending front. Um, and, you know, you think about what the Fed did when they raised rates aggressively you know, in 2022, we really saw the entire sort of fixed it, that, that benchmark fixed income complex was devalued by, call it 10 to 12%. And every bank, as a feature of the regulation coming out of the financial crisis, was told to hold these assets on their balance sheets. Um, and they needed to reach for longer duration, for higher maturity, because interest rates were so low. So it really was, um, I feel like, a, a bait and switch on the part of you know markets and to some extent something that the Fed should have, I think, better anticipated. Um, because from here, to your point, you know, as yields go up, the prices on those that the, that portfolio continues to become to come stressed. And so we're not worried about you know these banks. These are still you know good assets they're holding. Nobody expects a default on these assets. But it means that those unrealized losses really weigh on their balance sheet and have to be carefully managed. And that's the that's where it gets tricky. It's almost like un unintended consequence. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think you um, you really have have seen this when you try to to support or to force um, behavior on one side. There's an unintended. It's a that's a perfect way to put it. I love that. So let's dig a little bit deeper into real estate. There's a lot of concern on commercial real estate, particularly in, in the office space. And you hear that many of the regional banks are the holders of the loans. So again, another issue with kind of lending. How do you factor that component in? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think that's something we're going to be taking lender by lender because I think, you know, there's 
listen, commercial real estate's interest rate sensitive. <laughs> real estate's interest rate sensitive. So there is a correction that's underway, I and mean, a meaningful correction that's underway. But we have to look at it through the lens of really significant price gains, you know, in the value of these buildings over the past, you know, 10, even five years. So a correction lower often means that you're still really sitting on some significant equity appreciation within your investment. That's a good point that a lot of commentators don't don't yeah. write down. You know, I, I think there's also the good news that lenders, and again, you know, they're going to be outliers, but at the macro level, lenders have really been much more conservative. Loan to value ratios are more responsible. Leverage has been much lower than going into, you know, the, the mid 2000s rate hike cycle. You know, that old adage that history rhymes, but it doesn't exactly repeat. I think in this case, the rhyme is some price correction, but we're not, it's not going to be, or I don't expect it to be the epicenter of a crisis simply because lending standards have stayed more responsible. Now, certain sectors, and this is why I love commercial real estate, it's a very heterogeneous um, asset class. Office space is under significant pressure and the return to work dynamics are very different. They're very different region by region. I think you and I will be hopefully here again in three years and five years talking about the fact that we saw one of the biggest migrations throughout this in our country than we've seen in history. And it means that, you know, we may see permanent shifts to more office space in the Sunbelt area and some away from some of these, you know, Northeast or higher tax states. I don't know how it'll all shake out, but, um, you know, we look to or favor other sectors like multifamily, like industrial as a better investment today than um, than office, which is going to be more specific case by case. Another thing that you hear with commercial real estate is that they're going to have loans come due, not now, but in a few years. So there's concern about what happens when those loans come due and what happens if they have to roll them. Have you had a chance to take a look at that? Yeah, there's no doubt that the economics that a lot of real estate investors have been using have changed. You know, when cap rates are less than mortgage rates, which is, it's been the opposite. Um, you know, the economics of just continuing to buy, buy, buy really change. And that's why we favor an approach where you're looking at the shorter term loans to real estate and capturing income. Um, at, at the end of the day, um, you know, again, this is something that real estate investors are going to have to manage through. Happily, I don't think it's going to cause significant losses on the part of the lender's balance sheets, which as you pointed out off the top, banks are still very involved in that. Um, but the capital markets are deeper now. There are more non-bank lenders. And again, uh, because of the structure of these deals, a lot of times there's still equity left in properties should that need to be re-upped. What, what I found as, as humans, we tend to remember the past. Sure. And the past was pretty bad in 2008 and 2009. Really awful. But a lot of what unfolded there had to do with leverage, leveraging up the bank's balance sheet. And because of all of the new policies and regulations, I don't think we had, we, we don't even have close to what that leverage is. I mean, that leverage has come down dramatically. And I, I think that's an important component to talk about that even if you do see some defaults, which historically in, in an economy that slows down, you, you get a certain amount of defaults. 
that you don't have this leveraged component on the balance sheet that can really cause a massive collapse. Would, would you agree with that? I, I think I that's would, important. Yeah, sure. I, I would. I would absolutely agree with that. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, the commercial real estate sector um, is something that is is really in the headlines a lot, exactly because of the last downturn. But in reality, um, you know, lenders again being more responsible um, than the vastly different capital market landscape that includes a lot of non-bank lenders and the fact that um, we've had such significant equity appreciation going into this mean that, you know, to your, to your point, I think, you know, defaults are a part of a business cycle. They're never good news, but there is room for that to have a natural adjustment. In fact, there's still, I think one of the things we've learned is that Real estate is an important part of a diversified portfolio, and there's still um, room for it, um, despite the fact that we are experiencing this correction in these various sectors of, of commercial real estate. Yeah, there's cycles and everything. In yeah. fact, we were talking earlier, when I bought um, a house in 1999, I thought I was paying a ridiculous amount in 1999, and today, I don't look ridiculous, right? Everything has its ebbs, Absolutely. And, ebbs and flows. What I'd like to do is pivot a little bit and learn a little bit more about you. Oh, sure. <laughs> so I remember the day that I went to my father and I said, Dad, I'm going to major in economics. And he looked at me and he said, Marianne, economics is boring. Are you sure you want to major in economics? So not a lot of people appreciate economics. It's true. <laughs> Thank you. Especially at eight o'clock in the morning when you're taking an econ right. class. So how did you come to love economics and wind up becoming an economist on Wall Street? Uh, you know, I love the way you asked that question because I do truly love it. I feel like if I have, um, you know, an, an added advantage when I go in to present or speak to clients, it's that my natural passion comes through. And I feel like that really helps to keep it interesting. You know, for me, um, I always loved math. I liked, uh, you know, the statistics and the uh, mathematical side. And I also really enjoyed history. I enjoyed psychology a little bit, um, not enough to major in it. But when I started, you know, when I came into college, didn't actually really know what I wanted to major in. It was the right combination for me of some quantitative analysis, but also getting to look at human behavior, getting to study history and getting to put it all together. You know, at the end of the day, markets are just a whole bunch of us. Um, and I think that to me is what makes the marriage between economics and markets so interesting. I think, you know, the economy can be really strong and markets can do badly. You can have the inverse where markets are um, you know, skyrocketing, even though the economy is challenged. That's the connective tissue that I really love discussing with people and what I think makes it interesting to me. You and I have a lot in common. <laughs> <laughs> you actually did what, what I think and what many people think on Wall Street is the impossible. You had a career and you decided to have a family. Yeah. But leave Wall Street, raise a family for about a decade, yeah, and then reemerge back in the industry, and you've launched a second a second career. Yeah. Most people, especially women, don't feel like they can do that, which keeps them away from this industry. How did how did you achieve the impossible? Yeah, I think you know 
kids and I and I have two daughters now. They're 13 and 14. I just enjoy them so much. You know, I think to me, one of the reasons why I initially made that choice and the Great Recession had something to do with it initially, my husband always said to me, you know, honey, there's always time in life to work. And I think there was a moment where I did want to um, be there for the girls and to uh, enjoy having that time parenting. But that bug of the markets, of staying involved with, um, with working, never really left me. And I think when I talk to people about my choice to go back, um, I thought at first with very little pressure on myself, I would just see what was out there. And I wanna say that, first of all, it was much easier to re-engage than I thought. Um, and that you, know, you kind of went back to work after a month or two months, it felt like I'd never left. And I always tell people, because I get asked this question a lot, you know, the time to go back is when the economy is strong and the unemployment rate is 3.5%. <laughs> Don't wait until you have to. Make it a low-pressure exercise, and I think you'll really be surprised at how much opportunity there is out there. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Um, another question I like to ask my guests is about mentoring, because yeah. I think mentoring is really important. And we spoke prior to this, and I know mentoring is very important to yes. you. What's some mentoring advice that you'd like to give some of maybe our younger listeners? I think, you know, something that I hear a lot, and I mentor both men and women, but I hear it perhaps more from some of my female mentees, is agonizing if they feel like they've gone into a meeting and said something that they later wish they hadn't said or made a decision that they wish they hadn't made. My advice is to just move on. You know, maybe the, there's some value to be gained by looking backwards and thinking of things we could have done better or not. But you know what? There's always another meeting to go in, put your best foot forward and impress everybody. You can take every opportunity as a chance to learn and then fire forward. Um, spending a lot of time looking in the rearview mirror and worrying about, oh, did I say something? And someone didn't think it was very smart or someone, you know, could I have said that better? Let it go, move on. And there's always a chance to, to do it better next time. I think that's great. Um, I don't know if you had this experience, but it took me a long time to realize that my male counterparts were very good at promoting their successes. Yeah. I, for a long time, just put my head down and I expected people to see what I was doing. And what I found out that that model doesn't, did, work. doesn't work. You have to self-promote. So f whether yeah. you're male or female, I just feel that many females, I, I don't know what society, how we're brought yeah. up, we tend not to, to, to highlight our successes. I think another important thing, would you agree with that? Did you find the same experience? Yes, I, I would absolutely agree with that. And I think, you know, something that I tell people, a lot, of, a lot of people who are really good at school, you know, at school you have a teacher who's paid to pay attention to you and to keep track of how you're doing. But when you get out into the workforce, and especially as you move up, it's your responsibility to keep your manager apprised of what you're doing and to let everybody else know what you're working on. I don't think you can do enough of this. <laughs> and I think, you know, in it, and I think it, it, you know, a big part of it is, you know, is claiming your successes. And I think another part of it is just keeping the information chain flowing because everybody's busy, everybody's overloaded. And you really want to, I think, you know, show not only what you're doing, but ask, you know, for constant feedback about, 
um, you know, how, how you could be of better service. I, I try to end almost every meeting with what more can I do? How more can I help? And I think that's another way of tooting your horn in kind of a, a maybe a, a way that may feel more comfortable for people, especially for women. That's a great piece of advice. Um, this has been a great conversation. Yes. There's always so much to talk about. Um, there's something maybe that you want to talk about that we didn't get to. So I want to give you the opportunity to talk about anything that you want to talk about or talk about anything about FS investments or a combination of both. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think something that I've has always been really important to me is community service outside of work. And I often tell people who are struggling to feel like they are getting promotion or executive experience within their organization, look outside, join a board, um, you know, keep your passion alive through your work, but also outside of your work. I think that's something that FS Investments really encourages us to do and something that I have just found incredibly rewarding oh, outside of my job. What a great piece of advice, Laura. This has really been um, a dynamic, exciting, and um, informative conversation. And I really wanna thank you for joining us here today. And I wanna thank our audience for joining. Thank you for watching or listening to the Friends of Sanctuary podcast. Tune in next month to be sure not to miss out on the next installment of the series. Securities offered through Sanctuary Securities, Inc., member FINRA, SIPIC. Advisory services offered through Sanctuary Advisors, LLC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Sanctuary Securities, Inc. and Sanctuary Advisors, LLC are wholly owned subsidiaries of Sanctuary Wealth Group, LLC.